Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. Hi, I'm Kathy Ma. I'm Sean Fitzgerald. And I'm Tony Apoff. Today on the Thomas Industry Update podcast, we welcome Jill Mayer, CEO of Bead Industries. Jill is a fifth generation family business owner leading the Bead Electronics, Bead Chain, and McGuire brands. She is the president of Manufacture CT, Connecticut's largest manufacturing association. She serves in the executive networking group for women in manufacturing and is active in the Vistage CEO community. In 2019, Jill was named to Connecticut Magazine's 40 Under 40 list for impactful leaders and innovators. Today, we'll learn about her journey to becoming a business leader, leading in a time of crisis, driving digital transformation in a family business, and her thoughts on building a strong company culture. Hey folks, quick production note before we get started with today's episode. Unfortunately, I ran into a few audio challenges on my end during my interview with Jill. So my apologies for the harsh sound at some points. We're doing our best here working remotely just like most of you are. With that said, let's dive into the episode with guest Jill Mayer. Hi, Sean. Thank you for having me. I know. It's nice to see you again. It's uh, as, as I was prepping to chat with you, I remembered meeting you here about in, in 2014 and getting to learn more about your products and services here. So it's nice to catch up again formally um, and see you and have you on the show today. Absolutely. Same. Well, I, as we get started, it has been quite a year. And I think that's the understatement of the century probably here. Um, as you've been a leader through such a time of crisis with the pandemic, you know, and unrest in other areas of the country as well, um, you would come out and said, hey, not on my watch. We are not going to have problems at BEAT as we go forward. Um, how did you begin to process everything that was happening and formulate your strategy and game plan to, to keep the business moving forward? Yeah, so the, the, the not on my watch um, comment is, you know, my great, great grandfather started the company you know, for it to go through World War One and two depressions, recessions, and then a pandemic. Um, I didn't, you know, when when you're holding the baton and, and a long line of family uh, of generations running the business, I, I didn't want anything to jeopardize our company, certainly not when when I was at the helm and fairly new at the helm. I've been in my role for, you know, about five years. But, um, you know, I think it's important to to have that resiliency factor and and kind of push through things like like a pandemic so that's where that started <laughs> so it, it looks like you've had uh, many positions at bead before you you stepped into your role as the ceo how did that prepare you to understand all the different aspects of folks doing their job and how you formulated your game plan of how you wanted to be a leader yeah so um you know when my my father came when we moved to Connecticut. My father took over the business. His he established a board of directors, an external board of directors, right out of the gate, and they pretty early on had um, wanted him to put together a succession plan. And I was still in college, but they said, you know, you want to do that really early on. So uh, I started to take minutes for the board meetings, and um, you know poke my head in on the business every now and then. And then 
went into my own career after college and my father right after I got married about five years after college um, said you know any interest in coming to the family business and I knew that it was an opportunity that wasn't going to come around again and I just I figured why not give it a shot so my husband and I moved down to the company and the, the rule of the family business was you had to work somewhere else for five years check you couldn't just um, come in on any position. It had to be available. And there was a controller position available. It was kind of finance manager grow into controller. And, you know, I, I, I had my business degree, didn't necessarily love accounting, but I understood some of the basics. And then the, the gentleman that was leaving was training me in the evenings, And I kind of just worked my way into the role. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that was my strong suit, but I will say that not having that foundation of the financials of the company and being able to read a P&L and understand um, some of our metrics, I definitely couldn't do the job I'm doing now. So it set me up properly. Um, and you get to kind of see from the inner workings of the company before you get to a position of leadership. And so, you know, I was in that role for seven years and then my father retired and I moved into his into his role after a lot of mentor mentoring from our board as well. It's interesting to hear that the family had a very structured process, that there was no skipping the line and that you had to do, you had to do all the pieces of the puzzle. Um, it's interesting to hear that your background was, you know, started inside of the company on the finance side where, um, you know, typically with businesses like yours, and I guess our two businesses are a little bit of outliers that way. You're 107 years old. We're 120 years old. So in lockstep through everything that you've been talking about as far as, you know, the work that you've been doing to to drive America forward with manufacturing and the work we've been doing to try and support everyone as they've been doing that here in, in North America, too. Um, it's interesting to see fifth generation for you and some many other companies are up to third, you know, post-World War II, huge expansion. Uh, we're seeing a lot of private equity money start to flow into businesses because family members are, geez, not for me. I'm going to go work on something else. I'm going to do something else. Um, so it's interesting to see that, that you're stepping into it and also that your background, you know, you work through on the financial side, which tends to be more of a challenge with folks that take over family businesses this way, where their knowledge base typically comes from the engineering side of the house or the production side of the house as they come through. So front office stuff tends to be more of a challenge. You seem to have really developed a knack for the digital transformation in both parts of your business right now. So not only in sales and marketing, which tends to be a challenge, but also out on the floor. Um, and you had some fortuitous timing with moving your ERP to the cloud right before everything kind of went sideways. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey, both in the front office and on the floor as you've been driving this company forward? Sure. Uh, so while I was doing the, the finances when we first came, my real passion was, you know, marketing and um, that's what my degree had been in. So I was doing a little bit on the side of that, um, which is why, you know, the finance role that you can't, you don't get creative with finances, you get creative with marketing. So it certainly wasn't the best fit, but like I said, an important place to be. Um, in terms of technology and digital transformation, when I first got to the company, we had a very antiquated ERP system. We had, um, you know, our technology was just, we are you know it was just it was lacking and um and but it it was okay at the time because um we had we had a generation that uh, a large generation that was about to retire so it was okay for for the workforce that was there but it wasn't going to last more than a couple of years so we immediately overhauled 
our technology. Um, we upgraded to a new ERP system, which after decades of data and an old system, you can imagine how difficult that was. So many lessons learned. Yes. We should have we should have cleaned up the data and brought in just the current data. Instead, we just kind of uploaded everything and said, ah, we'll go through it as we as we go along. Um, like how you move a house sometimes and make that decision uh, to pack everything and then you wish you Yeah, it. and then you have to go through it later. So yeah, we, um, yeah. we, we learned that the hard way. Um, at the same time, there were some things that, um, there were some things that were ended up being kind of necessary. So, so there's no shortcuts to that is I guess I, what I would say to the audience or anyone listening who is thinking about, you know, implementing a new ERP system or is in the middle of it. There's no shortcuts. It's a long road and it's, it's absolutely necessary. Um, so, so aside from our, our data and our computers and our infrastructure, we were also looking at, um, we're currently working on our next generation machines. So we have a prototype that's going to be delivered this summer. Um, we had our, our, one of our older machines reverse engineered. Now, these machines originally manufactured our bead chain before we started making our bead electronics. Right. And they've been painted and refurbished and we've added computers and electronics and um, we've, we've bolted on as much as we can to the point where the we need you know higher quality higher tech motors we need um just different kinds of materials and um same exact process that's that's still relevant 107 years later but um the ability to integrate with our systems versus being completely separate and then trying to integrate them with an api or with some sort of a connector so um so that's been an interesting journey and of course it takes a lot of investment and that investment during a pandemic is difficult as well. But um, I sort of I'm under the impression that either either we make the investment or we don't. As you're looking to do investments uh, inside the company, obviously, you have a process that you go through to decide, you know, when when do we need to do this? What type of investment do we need to make? How are you looking at the adoption of automation as it pertains to? you know, your ability to get the skilled labor that you need. We we hear a lot about skills gap right now, especially in manufacturing and industrial. And I know there are a lot of folks, even some folks right in your backyard in Connecticut, uh, Sal Menzo working on that uh, in, in his school district. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, how are you looking at, at, at uh, measuring these two out and having it balance at the end of the day to say, what do I want to look at? for automation to take over and how do I continue to develop new skilled workers as they come into the company and this millennial generation gets stronger and stronger with decision-making and impact? So it's twofold, really. You've got the people. So we have people in our factory have been, been with us 20, 30 plus years and they do a phenomenal job. But I think in the past we've had manufacturing, we've had, we've had operators, um, we'd say, you know, we'll tell them what to do and then they go do it. Well, now we, we want them to think, you know, think through problem solve, um, critical thinking, all of that, we need those skills because anything that doesn't require thinking, we're automating because it doesn't make sense for them to, to do that. So as they're running these machines, we're challenging the folks more that are here. And then we're also bringing in new hires with the expectation that, you know, this is not just a repetitive, you're going to be in a corner all day. There's challenges, you have to work through them. You know, we want you to think, come with ideas. I mean, some of these, you know, they're on these machines all day. They know the machine inside and out. We need their expertise. It's not, it's not management going over to them and saying, what's, 
what the problem is. It's they're saying what the problem is and what a potential solution is. So we're shifting the thinking both with our existing workforce and then people that we're bringing in, we're, we're shifting the skills that we need. Does that make sense? It does. And I know that you're, you've been focused heavily on building a very strong culture at, you know, Beat Industries and, and all the, the businesses that you have. Um, imagine that's part of how you're able to recruit uh, newer folks into the company and, and having them be excited to come work with you when there are so many options right now um, and everyone's looking for new folks to come join the company. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your game plan and strategy around how you're recruiting such good new talent and then building that positive culture inside of the team? Yeah, so initially, um, when my father retired, I, I noticed that the communication was very siloed, different departments. So the first thing I did with culture was said, let's all get out of our offices, let's meet. It doesn't need to be a waste of the company's time. It can be a 10-minute stand-up meeting where we just kind of touch base. Maybe maybe every now and then they're fun sort of team-building meetings. They don't need to be just, you know, serious business all the time. And that, we got very comfortable with that. We had a lot of fun with that. And then slowly, just like a lot of things, you know, that got a little stale. And I think the point, the point was, is that we wanted to collaborate more. And so that shifted our culture, more collaboration, less, you know, just sitting in your offices. And then what, what really happened, what, what I noticed was missing was really like structure around that. And one thing that we decided to do was with using EOS, it's called EOS, it's the Entrepreneurial Operating System, is you basically have your core values that you create. And, and for us, we, you know, it's four core values. For us, we took two that we already are and that we love, and then two that we kind of aspire to be. And, um, and then so then, then any sort of team building or any sort of communication and any sort of hiring that we do, our performance reviews are based on the core values. Um, who we look for when we hire is based on our core values. Um, anything we do, processes that we change, you know, those are top of mind. So that, that's been over the last, you know, year or so of us rallying around a structured way to drive our culture forward versus a feeling, which we started out with a feeling like we want to be more collaborative. Now collaboration is our core value. I'm with you. Communication is the huge key to everything. And when that starts to break down, that's typically when your culture starts to, to go with it. I love that you touched on core values at Thomas. You know, we've been moving through, uh, you know, our continued journey of growing as a company, just like you have over all these years. And we've locked down on three core values for our business as well, as far as being inclusive, being curious, and then getting stuff done where, you know, work together, ask a lot of questions, ask what if, and then but at the end of the day, you got to get the job done, right? That's what we're all here to do. So as a business, that, that's where uh, we come at it from. Personally, for me, for every uh, team that I've ever run and folks that I've worked with, I've only had one core value, and that's just be helpful. If you're sticking together and if you're working together on things, if you're being helpful to customers, if you're being helpful to each other to get the job done, um, it, it all tends to come out in the wash at the end of the day with everyone sticking together on it too. So um, I don't know for you, also, um, it seems like you're very much a lead from the front person. It, it sounds like from when you know the pandemic started, you were there, you were checking in with folks and seeing they were okay. I think it's really important for, for the team to see that if you need to sweep the floors as a leader, you're happy to dive in and do that. You're never above any job. So if you could talk a little bit about how those days went down for you and, and uh, you know some of the things that you thought about and kept you up at night, you wanted to make sure that you did for the team and, and the company. One of the trickiest pieces was that 
you know, as a, as an essential company, we were open. Um, anyone who could be a lot of people were confused by that too, right at the beginning. You didn't even know if you could say right. Open. So once we figured out we were essential, we made sure we posted, le you know, the letters we got from customers that that said, you know, you're part of our essential chain and we're essential. So we were definitely because we're we're further down the the chain with with customers. We're tier three, tier four. Um, when they're essential, we're essential because we're supporting their essential. So we, we even um, we even supported a customer we made um, solenoid valves for. We supported them. They they pivoted to make ventilators. We gave them pins for that. Yeah. So we didn't have to pivot necessarily, but we supported on that. But so, yeah, once we once we determined we were essential, we could be open. We wanted to obviously minimize exposure and make sure that um, the employees that couldn't bring a machine home, right? The employees that had to be here um, felt safe. And part of that was that we made everyone who could be home stay home. But for me, that made me feel like, okay, they have to come in and I don't. So I really, um, it's, especially with management and leadership, I really felt like we, we threaded the line to being supportive and like we're in this together, but also, hey, I'm at home. So we tried to come in and as little as possible, but to still provide the support. Um, and a lot of times that meant just some, we would have a call every single morning, what's going on, you know, then it went to two times a week, then it went to once a week, but we, we made sure that we talked to our folks, even if we couldn't be there and just explain, here's what's going on. Here's what we heard. Here's what the state's doing. Here's what our, our company's going to follow. Here's what the CDC says we should do. Here's why you're safe. Um, here's, here's how you should protect yourself when on, you know, outside of the office and make the others feel safe. And so we just, we just communicated, even if we didn't know something, we said, we're not sure what we're going to do about this, but we're looking at it. We're, we're finding more information and being a part of Manufacturer CT um, and the Connecticut Manufacturing Collaborative gave us the information that we needed to disseminate it to our workforce so that they felt safe. So that was kind of the right, right off the bat stuff we were doing. It's interesting, and as you know, uh, as the leader there at Manufacturer CT, did you uh, get together with the team and help everyone understand? Hey, maybe these are the things that we need to share. You know, folks need to find PPE right now. How can we help facilitate where folks are finding it? That was what really hit us at the beginning. At Thomas, was we started to see this mad scramble for PPE start in mid January inside of our data, so we knew something was on the way. So that for us, you know, we knew our Super Bowl moment, if you will, apropos for when we're, we're recording this, I hear today for whenever you all get to hear it, um, was, hey, we need to share as much as we possibly can and help folks find masks, you know, uh, nitrile gloves, face shields. Um, was there any type of work that you did with inside of, of the associations, the many that you're a part of? I think the accolades are right off at the beginning as we get started. I don't know how you get everything done during the day. Um, were there uh, were there different things that each of those organizations was was doing to share information between businesses and leaders like you? Yeah, so I mean, being a part of the association and helps make my job easier because I don't have to go digging for that information. So you, when you say, "How do you have the time?" it's it's actually saving me time by being on the forefront of what's going on. But yeah, we we would find out, okay, somebody down in you know Bristol or up in Bristol has hand sanitizer and then we would spread the word to our community um so we just you know just trying to share as much information in as timely as a fashion as possible even we just had a program on vaccine um on the updates for that because no one seems to know when when they're going to get them how they're going to get them if they can require them 
So that all that kind of things that manufacturers keep them up at night, you know, if, if, even if you don't know the answer, if you know that no one knows the answer, but we're all working towards it, sometimes that makes you feel better. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thomas Industry Update podcast. To hear the rest of my conversation with Jill Mayer, check out the extended video cut now available on YouTube and linked in the show notes of today's podcast.